always the husband. Whether it's for the life insurance, jealousy, or a man not wanting to be a grown-up and ask for a divorce, when investigating the murder of a woman who was married, you start with the husband. Women are five times more likely to be killed by their husbands than men are by their wives. A good reason to stay single, ladies? Welcome to True Crime Spinster, where we explore the fatal outcomes of marriage. Today's story is about Betty and Glenn Wolsifer and how their relationship ended in murder, and the other lies left in his wake. Outrage alert! There's a lot in this story to hate about Glenn and the criminal justice system. To add a little spice to this ghastly story time, I'm going to create a piece of art as I spin you the tale of a cheating husband who couldn't just talk about his feelings like a grown-up, he had to lash out in a gruesomely violent way. This is because I don't do makeup and I need something to fidget with while I tell this story. This artwork is not directly inspired by the case, just by murderous husbands in general. So I've got my art supplies here. I'm going to be working in mixed media and collage. So I've got some paper media, um, my fluid medium, and some other things to help me glue down my paper images and assorted tools that I gather from my craft supplies. So let's get started crafting and with the story. I absolutely love true crime. First, who doesn't love a mystery? They're the best stories because they have all the elements of a good story. They've got stakes, conflict, suspense, and second, because there are so many stories of women murdered by their husbands, it's been instructive to me as a single woman about the dangers of marriage. We're painted this picture of domestic bliss that your partner should make you feel the safest. And before, I loved being single. I hated being single. But stories of this promise being broken made me feel a little bit better about not being married. And now, murderous husbands have made me marriage averse. I know I'm not alone in my love of true crime. Women love true crime, even though women are more often than not the victims of true crime stories. And I think it has to do with the ghastly statistics about women and marriage. I really think that our true crime obsession is about becoming more savvy about what could happen to you. Uh, learning these telltale patterns of behavior that men who want to murder their wives have exhibited and the ways that men have murdered women is just a way to feel safer, to give yourself like a fighting chance to keep the same thing from happening to you. So let me tell you about the circumstances surrounding Betty Wolsifer's death and her husband's role in her demise. From the outside, Betty and Glenn looked like the perfect couple, prominent, upstanding community members, that the kind of happy couple that everyone wanted to be. Or was it so perfect? What really lay behind the surface of their marriage? Most people saw the childhood sweethearts who met in their hometown of Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. Glenn dreamed of being a dentist, and Betty supported his dream. She worked at Blue Cross and Xerox to get Glenn through dental school. Then they married, and Glenn built a thriving dental practice. They were the all-American couple. He was handsome. People liked to say that he looked like Tom Selleck. She was a sweet, soft-spoken housewife who was active in her community that did lots of volunteer work and was busy raising their child, Danielle. Everyone loved Betty and thought that the Wolsifers had the perfect life. That was until August 30th, 1986, when Betty was discovered dead on her bedroom floor. She'd been brutally beaten and strangled. When the community heard about this gruesome crime, they were shocked and outraged and scared. They thought that a killer was on the loose and they had to find him before he struck again. Well, 
They were partially right. There was a killer on the loose, but it wasn't a masked stranger creeping into houses late at night. As Betty lay dead upstairs, downstairs, her husband Glenn was clinging to life, drifting in and out of consciousness after his brave attempt to fend off the intruder who had killed Betty and tried to strangle him with a belt. At least that's what he told his little brother and the police. Here's Glenn's version of events. He went out for a regular Friday night with the boys, clad in a styling Canadian tuxedo to go with his rugged Tom Selleck mustache. He got home at 2.30, got into bed, and heard a noise shortly thereafter. That was when a masked assailant stormed into his home, bursting in through an upstairs window. Glenn springs into action, grabbing his gun. Suddenly, the assailant attacks Glenn from behind, strangling him with a belt. Glenn blacks out, and when he comes to, around 6 a.m., he calls his baby brother, Neil, who lives just a few houses down. Neil rushes over and then calls 911. Neither man goes upstairs to check on Betty, or their five-year-old daughter, Danielle. Odd, right? As the police investigated the crime scene, they started to question Glenn's story, because nothing made sense. The ladder the killer used to get in the house, well... It was backwards, with no indentations in the ground, like no one had actually climbed it, because no one actually could, because the rungs were pointing the wrong direction. The dew on the roof was undisturbed. No handprints or footprints. And there was no dew on Glenn's car, but Betty's car was covered in it, meaning that Glenn's car had been moved recently. The telephone was not put back on the hook, which could have been Neil forgetting to put it back on after he called police, or it could have been evidence of crime scene staging. And the mess the killer made ransacking was just that, a mess. Nothing was taken. And those injuries that Glenn sustained at the hands of the killer, they were on the back of his head and neck, not the front, which doesn't add up when he claimed that he had been attacked from behind with a belt like that. And Betty's body is maybe the most bizarre part of the crime scene of all. She was savagely beaten. Her face was described as raw meat, but there was no blood on her face and no blood on her nightgown. Certainly she didn't clean, get up and clean herself up. And certainly a random intruder didn't do that, but maybe Glenn did. Investigators would never hear it from Glenn himself as he got himself a lawyer while he was in the hospital and refused to speak with police. But who might know something? Glenn's little brother, Neil, since Glenn called Neil before he called 911, and Neil was on the scene almost an hour before police were. Neil actually spoke with police multiple times, and each time he was nervous and he was shaking, but he didn't give them anything that they could actually use. Neil agreed to speak with the police a fourth time, but on his way to talk to them, he was killed in a collision, one that was later ruled a suicide. Neil ran into a dump truck, but there were no skid marks on the pavement ahead of him, meaning Neil didn't try to break before he hit the truck. Poor Glenn, dead wife, dead brother, so alone in the world. He must have been lonely, except for, oh, I don't know, the company of his two mistresses? Do we smell a motive here? Flashback to five years before Betty's murder when Glenn meets Debbie at work. Debbie was the dental hygienist in his practice, and I'm pretty sure that's actually sexual harassment, but Debbie thought that it was love, probably because Glenn told her that he would leave his wife for her, which Debbie believed until she found out that Glenn was also having an affair with Carol, an aerobics instructor. Not just simultaneously, sometimes on the same night. I guess Glenn was a discount adulterer. He would book a room at the Red Roof Inn and meet both women there on the same night. Separately, but like during the same booking. 
When Debbie found out about Carol, she turned on him and started talking to police. Way to go, Debbie. But don't feel too bad for Glenn or his family, specifically his sister-in-law, Nancy, because Glenn started seeing Nancy somewhere in there as well. Nancy, as in Neil's widow. That's right, Glenn just couldn't keep it in his pants and made the moves on his dead little brother's wife. I'm sure he thought that he was doing the right thing, the noble thing, by making sure Nancy was okay, comforting her in her time of need. But what happened to Carol, you ask? Well, Carol stood by her man, even when he was dating Nancy, which Nancy found out about and also turned on Glenn. Finally feeling the heat, Glenn moved out of Wilkesbury and into Virginia, taking his new wife, Carol, <coughs> Carol the aerobics instructor, with him. So that's it. That's the end of the story. Glenn gets away with it, and he and Carol live happily ever after. Of course not. That would make me way too fucking angry. But it would make me very happy if you subscribe to the channel and like this video. No. Instead, Barbara, Betty's friend, steps up with some new information about the case. Things Betty showed her and told her before her murder. Betty had confided in Barbara that Glenn had left bruises on her in previous fights. She also told Barbara that she knew about Glenn's affairs and that she'd had enough and she was going to confront him. That piece of information cracked the case and led to Glenn's very public arrest in 1989, three years after the crime. So here's the state's version of the events of August 29th and 30th. On August 29th, Glenn meets up with Debbie at the Red Roof Inn and then goes to the Crackerbox Palace to blow off even more steam. He sees Carol there, but she's with her husband, which enrages Glenn because, you know, he should be able to do whatever and whoever he wants whenever he wants to. When he gets home, Betty confronts him, leading to a brutal fight. Betty had defense wounds all over her body, and she gives Glenn the injury on the back of his head, what he claimed was from when the assailant attacked him from behind by yanking the chain necklace he often wore this way. Betty also gets fibers from Glenn's Canadian tuxedo under her fingernails. Betty puts up a good fight, but Glenn gets the upper hand and strangles her with his hands, finishing the job with a ligature. He then starts to stage the crime scene, washing Betty's face and body, changing her nightgown, driving somewhere to dispose of her bloody clothing. Remember the dew? The dew was gone because he'd moved his car recently. Putting up the ladder backwards, ransacking the house, and giving himself some injuries. The injury on the back of his head could have also been self-inflicted uh, by slamming his head against the wall, or his brother Neil perhaps helped him with some of the staging. which is what they presented to a jury who took six hours to convict, convict Glenn Wolsifer of third-degree murder. He was released on bail while he appealed the verdict and was sentenced to 8 to 20 years in 1992. <sighs> that means that he had two more years of freedom even though he'd been convicted of murder. He was granted parole in 2005 because he admitted he was guilty of killing Betty. I roll. He moved back to Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania after his release and still lives here to this day, and his family stands behind him. Carol did divorce him and married someone else, however. Good for Carol. So that's the story of one husband who thought that he could control everything, including whether or not his wife got to live. I obviously have a lot of thoughts about this case. I think first and most notably is that we don't know that much about Betty. This was a time before social media, before a lot of people had video cameras, so there aren't that many materials like that 
to help us get inside of her head. That we don't know more about her is part of the tragedy. She was just 32 when she was killed. We don't know what she wanted. I mean, I can guess that she didn't want to be murdered and she didn't want to be abused or cheated on by her husband. She wanted to raise her daughter in a safe environment with a stable partner. And there are many other things that we will never know about her because she was murdered by a sleazy shithead who helped put him through dental school. Of course, I think Glenn is a piece of shit, just oozing white male privilege. He was granted leniency at every step of the process. So imagine what would have happened if he just admitted to the murder right away instead of trying to cover it up badly. He would have gotten manslaughter maybe? So I do buy that the jury couldn't convict him of first degree murder because he did a really bad job covering up what he'd done. If that's what he'd planned, kill her and then stage the crime scene, oh boy. Like I'm kind of glad for his patience in a way. Like no one wants the killer dentist, but also no one wants the dumb dentist who cannot rationally think of a way to commit a murder. But third degree murder does seem a little light for the severity and brutality of the crime. I'm really mad at the parole system. If you say you're sorry for what you did, you can go free, even though you've been previously deemed a threat to women in society. But you know, it's okay because you apologized. It's very dumb, especially because there are people sitting in jail who won't admit to doing it because they didn't do it and they're kept in jail because they haven't said sorry for a thing they didn't do. But someone who does something as heinous as long as they say whoopsie, they can go free. And of course, all of the leeway he was given after he was convicted makes me really mad. I'm actually not that mad at the Wilkesbury Police Department uh, who didn't charge him with anything uh, immediately after the crime. They didn't think the case was strong enough and apparently to convict an upper middle-ish class white dentist, it needs to be airtight. And if your case isn't strong enough, you know, the shitheads like Glenn might walk away because you can't charge someone for murder after they've already been acquitted. So as aggravating as this years long delay in his arrest, I do get it. Still aggravating though. And of course, this is a tragedy. I'm not trying to make light of this case at all. It's a shocking, violent act that reminds us that the danger women face when confronting their abusers. We'll never know for sure exactly what triggered Glenn's rage, but it's a fair assumption to make that it was due to Betty's confrontation because that is traditionally a time when a woman is very vulnerable in a domestic violence situation. I think this case also reminds you that if you are feeling bad about not being married, that not everything about marriage is positive and sometimes deadly. Head on over to YouTube or Instagram to see the finished piece. The main sources I used for this episode were the Forensic Files episode, Due Process, and the Handsome Devils episode, The Deadly Dentist, and this blog post from Forensic Files Now. I'll link to everything in the description. Thanks for watching the first installment of True Crime Spinster. If you like this and want more episodes, please let me know. You can also follow me on Instagram, at Living the Spinster Life, and YouTube, The Spinster Life, for more great content. Rate and review The Spinster Life on Apple Podcasts because it helps new listeners discover the show. Thanks so much for listening.